Just a quick note that due to technical issues, this week's podcast was recorded over a phone line, and you may hear some crackles and dropouts along the way, but I hope you enjoy the episode. What happened in Armenia in these past few weeks, in short, can be described as a power grab that backfired. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about the recent successful political uprising in Armenia that has come to be known as the Velvet Revolution. Joining us for this conversation from Armenia is Vartan Oskanian, who served as Foreign Minister of the Republic of Armenia and also is a former member of Parliament. Vartan, welcome. It's good to have you here. Well, good to be on the show. Thank you. Also joining us is Salpi Gazarian, who is the director of the University of Southern California's Institute of Armenian Studies. Welcome, Salpi. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you, Brian. Bertan, of course, you live in Armenia. And Salpi, I understand you just got back from Armenia. So you both witnessed firsthand the events of the so-called Velvet Revolution. I'm really glad to have you on to be able to share with us what happened and also what the significance of these events are. For deep dish listeners who may not know about this story, you know, in the U.S., our focus has been on things like the Iran nuclear deal, the upcoming summit between the U.S. and North Korea, uh, the Russian investigation of the U.S. administration, all important issues, no doubt, um, but far less well covered um, has been a really fascinating and important set of events in Armenia that is now known as the Velvet Revolution. And just in brief, after weeks of popular protests, Prime Minister Serge Sargisian um, was forced from power. And then just two weeks later, on Tuesday, May 8th, the opposition leader, um, Nicole Pashinian, um, became the new prime minister. So, Salpi, before we get into events, I was wondering if you could just give a brief introduction to the two main players, Serge Sargisian and also uh, the opposition leader, Nicole Pashinian. Uh, who are these people? You know, um, before I tell you who these people are, let me just say that Armenia is quite proud to be uh, inserting a bit of optimism in political processes, given the lineup you just mentioned between, you know, Iran and, and Korea and uh, the Russian in, uh, election meddling issues. It's really nice to have a positive political story. And so this story about Armenia's really domestic political transformation is part of the global story now, and we're kind of both happy and proud of that. The, the two players are very interesting people of two different generations, and maybe that's the theme of this story. Serge Sarkisian has been part of Armenia's power structure essentially since independence. Uh, he was a, a, a participant in the Gharapov conflict, a military leader, he became defense minister, national security, uh, and was president for 10 years until he decided that wasn't enough and helped actually spearheaded modification of the Constitution so that he could stay in power this time as a prime minister. Uh, changed the Constitution enough so that the prime minister now had all the executive power rather than the president. And Nigel Pashinyan is of the generation who was at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, at the beginning of Armenia's independence, you know, this 18, 20-year-old who believed in the promises of independence. And since then, he's been a rabble-rouser. He's been a, the editor of a very populist newspaper, always in opposition. And so his name has been very well-known, but he hasn't really been a political player until very recently when he was elected member of parliament. 
So these are the two guys, and it's not coincidental that they are of two different generations. Interesting. And and Vartan, could you explain to us what happened to initiate the political protests? How what set in motion this Velvet Revolution? What what happened in Armenia in these past few weeks? In short, can be described as a power grab that backfired. When in 2015, the ruling party, the Republican Party, initiated the process of adoption of a new constitution, transforming Armenia from a semi-presidential system to a parliamentary one, there was a suspicion and concern that this change is being done to enable the president then, Serge Sarkisian, to reinvent himself as head of state again in the position of prime minister once his presidential term ends in 2018. At that time, to ease those concerns, because the previous constitution wouldn't allow the president to run for more than two terms, just like in the United States, to ease those concerns, Sarkisian then promised the Armenian people that if the new constitution is adopted, he will not seek any high office. Well, a month ago, he did just that, thus angering the public and triggering the protest movement. But that was not the only reason that triggered the movement, but it was also fueled by deep-seated grievances, resentments, anger, and hatred towards the person of the president, the ruling Republican Party, and the government in general, and its failed policies. So it was not only the Armenian people felt deceived by the president, but they also had wanted change in Armenia for so long. And the failed policies in combination with that deceit triggered this process, and we ended uh, with this uh, velvet revolution. So there are lots of... Go ahead, Sophie. You know, Brian, when we talk about this this deep-seated frustration, this is real. We're not just talking about, you know, the elite at the top, the, the oligarchy, the top business leaders with political connections, making uh, a lot of money on, you know, uh, monopolies in various sectors. We're not just talking about the top. We're talking about an abrogation of responsibility to govern all the way down to the bottom, no improvement in local services, education system that is underfunded and corrupt in many ways because somebody's brother-in-law, sister-in-law has got to be uh, principal, all the way down to every single level. And the disparity in income, the obvious apparent feeling of the wealth and the resources of the country, that's very visible. This is a small country. Everybody wants to school with somebody. And all of that just built up so that the generation who hasn't got anything to fear, who were not those principals whose jobs were at stake, and enough of this. And you talked about the fact that there had been this constitutional change, that leadership wasn't going to change. We've seen other situations in which there's been a high degree of frustration, and in some countries, leadership still continues. What was the, the mobilizing moment? What, what triggered the mass protests that, that converted that build up, that built up frustration into political action on the street? 
Well, that was the moment when the ruling party announced that their candidate for the prime minister's office, after the new constitution has entered into force, will be the former president, says Sarkisian. And Nikol Pashinyan, as an opposition member in the parliament, seized that opportunity. He realized that the public is ready because of the past resentments, and this particular case, as a trigger, will get the people out to the streets. And Pashinyan made a very smart move. He walked from Gumbi, the second largest city in Armenia, all the way to Yerevan, took him a week, it's 150 kilometers, simply to show to the public that he's making a move. And he asked everybody else make a move. His motto was, take a step, reject this uh, candidacy, reject Seth Sarkisian's candidacy to the prime minister's office, because he promised us otherwise. Secondly, he hasn't delivered during his tenure as president uh, with uh, positive results, uh, and we need to reject him. And that walk really galvanized the Armenian public, created a lot of sympathy to, towards him. He made the first sacrifice, and people started following. He started the walk alone with few journalists walking along with him. On the path, on the road to Yerevan, people started gathering, and eventually he ended up in Yerevan with 2,000 people, and they immediately started a sit-in at the center of the city, around the Opera Square, which is a cross-section of major streets, and that started to paralyze the city and got the public's attention. And people started coming out to the streets and following Nikol Pashinyan's instructions. And you know that first thing that Vatan said, take a step. And, you know, there's education in each one of these messages. It's not just reject this, but you take a step, you do it. You know, that whole process of engaging people from throughout the country, through all generations and classes, that was really, really important. And he succeeded. Plus, he made it, one is too trivial a word, but he made it not confrontational. You know, he said, look, we're just doing this. We're doing this peacefully. We're doing this nonviolently. We're doing this in a decentralized manner. You guys, you choose the important streets that you need to be walking down, and you do it. You do it. You both have laid out a number of factors that led to the success of this political moment. Um, and one of the other things that's really striking to me is that the government didn't choose to use violence against the, uh, against the protesters. So what I want to ask about is going forward, um, is the fact that the government didn't use violence, the former prime minister stepped down, the fact that there's so much momentum around this movement, does that mean that the new prime minister, Pashinian, has an easy task of putting the reforms into place? Because as I understand it, um, the former government still has uh, a majority in parliament. What happens next to go from this moment of euphoria to turn this into governing success as well? He doesn't have an easy time of it. It's going to mean educating every step of the way and building coalitions along the way. We don't have a tradition of either. Our leaders don't do educating. Civic activism has been self-taught. And just as he did during the protest, he's really going to have to spend some time to explain and say, people, this one is going to take time because, you see, first we need to do this and then get this law changed and then do this. And... Unfortunately, people's expectations and socioeconomic 
realities are such that I don't know how much patience there's going to be. On the flip side, there is the issue of political coalitions. We've never had to work in coalition. The ruling political party has been the ruling political party, and they do pretty much what they do. He's going to have to work with them. And that's not just on him. That's also on them, on the former ruling party members in parliament who are going to have to think through and say, you know, there are ways of keeping our seats beyond being part of a a corrupt, non-democratic process. We perhaps can go along with some of these ideas that are not bad ideas and keep our seats. It's going to be complicated. And also, we're now in a very precarious situation. Pashinyan has, has the executive authority, but doesn't have the parliament. As you said, uh, the majority in the parliament is still held by the former ruling party. Uh, for the revolution, at least functionally, to come to a fruition, there must be early parliamentary elections. Pashinyan is interested to, in holding uh, the early parliamentary elections uh, as soon as possible, since he is still rides popular wave. The former ruling party is not interested in that at all. The Constitution is very stringent in its mechanisms to allow the, uh, the, the, the dissolving of the, of the parliament. One way uh, is possible when uh, the parliament disapproves the government program, which must be presented by the prime minister very soon. The other option is that all political forces, political parties, come to an agreement to relinquish their parliamentary mandate. And in both cases, the final word is still with the former ruling party. What they will decide, it's, it's hard to tell. But if they have any smarts, and they take lessons from our past 25 years of history, and they get the message of the street, of the Armenian people, I believe they need to sit down, agree with the uh, prime minister on a date for a parliamentary election. Because they understand, we all understand, that today's parliamentary composition does not reflect the will of the Armenian people. And the message is out there. Hundreds of thousands of people were on the streets calling not only for Said Sarkisian to relinquish power, but they're demanding substantial changes in the system of our governance. They need a fundamental change. And in order for that to happen, we need as early possible a parliamentary election. And is it possible that the new prime minister, Pashinian, would go back to the people and try to mobilize them around uh, to put pressure on the former ruling party um, to allow for those elections, to join in and call for those uh, elections. Um, what, what's what's the possible mechanism that he can use to get there? Or is he going to just have to wait out however long this parliament is formed for in order to be able to face elections and hopefully changing the composition of parliament? Well, the answer is, of course, uh, it's not ruled out. Uh, whenever he calls the people out on the streets, uh, they will still have hundreds of thousands showing up. But I don't know if uh, that will be an effective way to resolve the differences between the ruling party and, 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 and uh, you know, the prime minister. It's one thing when you're leading a revolution and you're on the street and you're calling the people to join you. It's another thing when you already have the executive power sitting in an office, 
And when you have differences with your parliament, call the people to come out to put pressure on, on the parliament. It will not be very understandable, although the Armenian people still will do it, in my view. But the international community, maybe, as much as they were extremely supportive to what happened and they welcomed these changes, they will be reluctant, I think, uh, you know, to support that kind of a pressure on the parliament uh, when you already have taken over, over the executive. And Pashinyan needs to look for other ways uh, to solve the differences and get the majority on board for early parliamentary elections and also starting implementing the reforms. People have high expectations, uh, and uh, he needs to start delivering. And the prime minister has huge executive powers. He can do a lot without going to the parliament asking their permission for, uh, or legislative uh, measures uh, to begin the implementation of the necessary reforms that will put Armenia on the right track of development. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's some, something that we're very used to. Um, in this country with the Trump administration, even the Obama administration that used executive power in order to achieve things that were difficult to get through Congress. Selpi, do you have a sense of what are some of the substantive issues that the prime minister could pursue either through executive power or to be able to work with the opposition? Are there programmatic issues that could be used? So I want to pick up right there because I think it's fascinating. That's a really good question, Brian, because on the one hand, he really is going to have to show successes. And if that means using executive power to do it, he may have to. Uh, on the other hand, you know, as you know, uh, the devil is always in the details and getting people out on the street to back you when you're discussing or trying to uh, cultivate, develop specific political policy changes. That's really hard. There are some areas that are completely within his purview, like the judiciary. And we have a judiciary that is very dependent on the top authorities and therefore not independent. And therefore, the public feels as if they have no recourse when they feel they have been wronged in any sphere, administrative, criminal, any sphere, uh, civic, business. And so if he were to succeed in liberalizing, freeing, opening up the judiciary, that would be hugely useful and beneficial and visible. But that's still one step removed from the normal person. The other areas where immediate change is desirable are the spheres of education and health, the two things that affect people most, your kids and your health. To what extent he can make those changes top-down I don't know, number one. And number two, um, this isn't just about legislating and changing regulation. It's also about changing people's minds and attitudes and convincing them that they are now free and open to make the changes they want to make at the implementation level, the service personnel. The flip side of that is that the economy still is at a point that people's salaries are very low. Not in all positions. You know, IT, banking, management, there are positions that are perfectly fine and, and there is this small growing middle class. But in many other positions, they're low. Is he going to be able to raise salaries for those on the government payroll, police, teachers, uh, some of the, the health uh, facilities that are still public facilities? Is he going to be able to raise salaries enough to relieve those people and release them from the Mm, custom of 
either asking for a little bit extra or receiving a little bit extra for a service. Claire, I hope I just made the answer more complicated. These are all possible to do, and they do not require legislative changes. Truly, Pashinyan doesn't even have to come to Parliament to ask uh, for their help uh, in getting these reforms in place. The problem in Armenia is not in legislation, but in its implementation. Uh, there's always been favoritism, uh, and uh, uh, law has not been uh, applied equally uh, on all citizens. Uh, it's a matter of implementation. If he had, you already made the changes at, at the police, you know, uh, national security. Uh, these are the two agencies that uh, basically oversee uh, corruption, nepotism, uh, you know, uh, favoritism, that sort of thing. So if he can make progress in those areas, for the early stages, the Armenian people will be very satisfied uh, because they will understand that the higher salaries will not come within weeks and months. That will take a longer time. But uh, these are the priorities. So once those are addressed, then the money will flow in. Pashinyan has a difficult task, uh, you know, when it comes to the economy. Our budget is pretty restrictive, and our borrowing capacities uh, are extremely limited now. During these past 10 years, uh, we've lived on uh, borrowed money. Uh, we've exhausted our limits. Uh, 10 years ago, our national foreign debt was uh, 17% of our GDP. Today, it is over 60%. Uh, which is above the uh, permitted level within the IMF requirements for countries uh, like Armenia. So Pashinyan doesn't have much room to borrow from international organizations uh, to implement infrastructure projects, uh, to pay salaries, what have you. His only source of income will be foreign direct investment, the assistance of the international community through grants, and, and our diaspora's involvement. And that possibility is clearly out there. That's why it's extremely important to do the reforms, the, the things that Salvi outlined. If Pashinyan would do those things within the next few months, that means Armenia's reputation and the trust towards Armenia among the international community and the foreign investors and our diaspora will improve and we will see the flow of money into Armenia. And that's what's going to make a difference in Armenia's economy before we start, uh, you know, borrowing again, uh, because that is uh, already a huge burden on Armenia's budget. For example, the United States uh, 10 years ago started this uh, Millennium Challenge program with Armenia. It has a certain criteria for uh, dispensing that money, uh, we did well the first two years. Then, after a change of government, we walked back, and the United States government uh, just uh, cut it off. But that money is still available. I think uh, $200 million is available for Armenia if we can make improvements uh, in those criteria that have been set uh, in democracy, good governance, uh, a liberal economy. So that possibility is there. The European Union can organize investors' uh, conference uh, where money can be allotted for Armenia. So the international community is ready to help. Armenia has a lot of sympathy from that side, and everybody wants to see this small country 
in this very, uh, you know, problematic region uh, succeed and become an island of uh, stability. Uh, let's look what's happening around us in the larger Middle East. Iran now is going to come again under sanctions. Uh, Turkey is uh, in decline in its uh, democratic processes. The uh, Middle East is in a big turmoil. Even investors from those regions will look into Armenia as a safe haven, as a place that they can come and invest. So the opportunities, I think, are you know many, and if we could get on with our reforms, uh, we will see better times coming uh, in the uh, coming months and years. So you both have just talked about positive forces that could move Armenia forward in the direction kind of that was advocated during the during the protests. Um, we know from from history and revolutions uh, that those pushed out of power um, usually don't just sit quietly on the sidelines and let things unfold. So what do we expect to have happen from Sarkeesian and others from his Republican Party. Do we expect them to push back against these against these changes? I mean, if we think about the Arab Spring, for example, there was a lot of euphoria about people power, changing governments, removing authoritarian, long-entrenched leaders. And yet, in most cases, what happened over time is those folks pushed from power ended up coming back in new forms, if not the exactly the same people, the same political forces. What's likely to happen in Armenia on this front? I think they're going to sit in for a while. They will wait to see how things will evolve, whether Pashinyan will succeed or not. They don't have any resource now to push back. But our Constitution has a clause which uh, may give them uh, this idea of just uh, waiting it out. After a year of Prime Minister's uh, election, they will have the opportunity to uh, ask for a vote of no confidence uh, for Prime Minister. But that cannot happen uh, before uh, a year passes. Uh, So they're going to wait. They may uh, not overtly, but tacitly uh, obstruct uh, Pashinyan's plans and not let him succeed. Uh, But that's not going to happen overtly. they will just sit and wait. Uh, that's why I insist that it's extremely important for those who would like to see the uh, revolution uh, succeed, not only uh, functionally, but also substantively in terms of producing results uh, for the army and people need to uh, come in, help the prime minister uh, so that uh, it uh, truly succeeds. Uh, and in a year's time, as I said, they can uh, propose a vote of no confidence, and with a simple majority, they uh, simply can remove him from office and install uh, their candidate. And if uh, truly Pashinyan had uh, failures during this year, uh, that will be much easier to do than it is now to oppose him uh, overtly. So there are some uh, pitfalls uh, before him, uh, but these are all, uh, I think, things that can be overcome uh, with uh, firm commitment, uh, working through the executive power uh, to implement uh, his promises uh, or deliver his promises uh, that were made uh, during this movement. Now, in the United States, we take at our peril, as we've discovered, the fundamentals of democracy for granted. 
because it's just kind of been around us. In Armenia, we don't know them yet. We are still saddled with the Soviet top-down thinking. And so if at this time institutions like the media don't step in with their fundamental democratic responsibility, not this phony sort of artificial objectivity that we sometimes preach in the U.S., but actually coming in and looking at each of the legislative items, each of the the political needs, and really talking about the complexities of parsing them and what it takes to get them moving and what the financial implications are so that the people continue to uh, become aware of their own ability to influence aspects of these promises, then the continuing growth of people power will be there to buttress against some of these potential political pitfalls that Vashon just identified. Otherwise, it's going to be, I'm afraid, these uh, uh, leaps from street to street. And you can only do that so far. We've been focused very much on the internal dynamics inside Armenia, which are incredibly important and inspiring to this entire story. Obviously, Armenia, like all countries, sits inside of a geopolitical context. And the country that has been most concerned since the end of the Soviet Union with this region has been Russia, of course. What has Russia's reaction been to these sets of developments in in Armenia? As I understand it, they had a pretty good relationship with the previous government. Are they supportive? Are they potentially a disruptor in this process? What do you see there? No, they didn't disrupt at all, uh, Brian. Uh, with regard to Russia, let me make a general observation. Uh, because there's a misperception about Russia's role in the former Soviet republics, uh, not only in Armenia, uh, also in the international community. Look, Russia's influence in Armenia, or the other former republics, as I said, is over-exaggerated. Ukraine is a little different because of its huge geopolitical value as a buffer against NATO. This notion of a strong Russian influence in Armenia is mostly of our own making, believe it or not, which eventually has become a self-fulfilling prophecy over time. That perception, as I said, also exists among the foreign observers, analysts, and journalists. It's trendy to invoke Russia makes their story, case, and topic more interesting. In reality, Russia doesn't tell you what to do and what not. Look, I've been there for 10 years as foreign minister, and I can speak with certain authority. Russia does not dictate. Russia simply expects that if you want to maintain friendly relations with it, and you will benefit uh, from the advantages of that relationship, Russia simply expects that you be considerate of its national security interest. So the challenge for any administration in Armenia is to set the limits of that considerateness. If you set it very wide out of certain fears, uh, out of uh, fear of... uh, uh, Russian retaliation, what have you, or misreading of Russia's interest, if those limits are pretty wide, that means your ability to conduct independent foreign policy will be limited. But if you are competent enough to read Russia's interest uh, well, 
and have the diplomatic abilities to maneuver, you would set your limits of considerateness of Russia's interest in a narrow fashion. That will give you much bigger option to conduct independent foreign policy above and beyond those limits that you set for yourself. This has been the, the, the norm in this past 25 years uh, when it comes to our relationship with Russia. Salpi, anything you want to add to that? Um, the one line that Vastan said I want to repeat. You know, the Armenian-Russian relationship has been, uh, has been a long one. You know, Armenians love Pushkin and Armenians love Rachmaninoff and the cultural and the linguistic affinities uh, also color this political perception. And when Vastan said we kind of, you know, did it to ourselves, we, we ourselves believe that we are in not just desperate need of this huge uh, brother's support, but that it's indispensable and it's inevitable, and therefore there's direction from Russia. And the, I'm not at all minimizing the dependencies and the interdependencies, but that we do have agency in this relationship and in this region, we do. And that might be the American cowboy in me speaking, but it's not just that. We, we do. We're small enough to be insignificant in many ways, and that helps develop a somewhat independent and self-own uh, interest-driven uh, policy. The other thing is that Russia, you know, obviously it's not a Russia-Armenia relationship in isolation. The, the borders with Turkey remain closed at Turkey's decision. It's Turkey's decision to keep this border in Eurasia closed. It's the only one. If that border were open, Armenia's worldview, Armenia's outlook, Armenia's options would be so very different. The conflict with Azerbaijan, that must be resolved in order for Armenia's options to change. And yet for that conflict to be resolved, both countries need legitimate leadership so that the populations of both countries are at least somewhat willing to go to the concessions that are essential for peace. We now have a legitimate leader. He needs to be very wise about what he does. Azerbaijan does not have a legitimate leader. And so there's, there are going to be pressures from that side towards a sort of peace deal that he, President Aliyev from Azerbaijan, thinks he can deliver that is not what is going to lead to lasting peace and stability. So it's really complex, and it's not just Russia. And for people who aren't familiar with the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, over Nagorno-Karabakh. Could you briefly just say what is that conflict about? Very, very briefly. Um, the Soviet policy of gerrymandering and dividing up ethnic groups within other republics resulted in a very strong Armenian population in an enclave called Karapakh within Soviet Azerbaijan. When Gorbachev promised Glasnost and Perestroika, the Armenians of and the Armenians of Armenia believed him and said, you know what, we need more social and economic and environmental rights in this part of Azerbaijan. The demands were met with violence. That led to greater demands for independence of Varapov and possible annexation to Armenia, but certainly not being the part of Azerbaijan any longer. That led to more military conflict. Azerbaijan attacked twice. Armenians won twice. Today, that enclave is under Armenian control, Arapari Armenian control, and the territories around it are held as a peaceful buffer zone. It is that situation of the self-maintained 
peace, so-called, that we've had now for about 24 years. It's not really peaceful. Azerbaijan snipers continue to shoot into Armenia proper, not just uh, Gharapakh, and it is uh, a situation that is not unstable, but certainly is not stable either. And it certainly is a problem in the region. Transport routes are blocked. Uh, attitudes, approaches to regional issues don't exist because we don't see ourselves as a region. And so a resolution of that is, is essential for everybody. And will this be a high priority, do you think, for Prime Minister Pashinian? I think so. His first visit was to Varapov, and um, he understands that the message to the international community needs to be that Armenia will continue to defend Varapov's rights, and that same message needs to be delivered to the people of Varapov as well. Uh, where we go from there is partly dependent on him, but of course also partly dependent on Aliyev's uh, desire to make real peace. And Fartan is the former foreign minister of the country. Fine, that was, I think, in a much more advantageous position in negotiations with Azerbaijan, particularly in the eyes of the international community, is one, the legitimacy of Pashinyan's government, which it is already. If he would have parliamentary elections and he has been re-elected, I think that will even strengthen our hand, uh, you know, further. And secondly, our democratic processes. We need to show to the world that these are two different countries. Azerbaijan is authoritarian country. Uh, Armenia is democratic, so is Karapak. And Karapak cannot simply be part of an authoritarian state. They belong to Armenia, ethnically, religiously, in every other possible way, but also in their desire to live in a free society. That's also an expression of their right for self-determination, to decide what kind of a government they would have to build their future with. So that will put us clearly in a very disadvantaged position, I mean, in a very advantageous position. That's why the next month and year, I would say, will not only be critical for Armenia's economic development, but also for the resolution of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. And as we close, I want to ask both of you um, the same question, which really puts what has happened in Armenia in a bigger context. Over the last several years, there's been big debates and concerns about the, quote, retreat of democracy. Uh, and this has been around the world, right, uh, with uh, concerns about what election campaigns and outcomes in Europe and the United States and other parts of the world have said about uh, where democracy is headed in the world. One of the things about this really amazing, the Velvet Revolution in Armenia, is it is a uh, it is it runs counter to that to that narrative. I was wondering if you could put what's happened in Armenia into the broader context of this debate over the state of democracy in the world and how events in Armenia contribute to our understanding of this moment in world history. Well, right. just a while ago, as I said, we need to learn from our mistakes of the past 27 years in the state building and do things right now. We also have now the opportunity to learn from the uh, other democracies' uh, uh, shortcomings and try to build our liberal democracy on a stronger footing. You're right, liberal democracy is in decline in Western democracies. We've got to look uh, for the reasons of that decline. Well, they're grappling with, uh, you know, uh, inequalities, uh, 
loss of confidence uh, in their governments, uh, this huge political divide, particularly in the United States, but also in other democracies in Europe. We need to look at the reasons uh, why uh, these things are happening, uh, what's been at the core of the uh, philosophy of the liberal democracy. Maybe the teaching of the uh, political thinkers uh, who encouraged the Enlightenment uh, or served uh, as their ideology and the liberal democracy somehow were flawed. Uh, they were putting emphasis too much on the individual, which is motivated by greed, by glory, by, uh, you know, self-serving, uh, you know, uh, needs. Uh, maybe that needs to be overlooked so that we combine the individualism uh, that is very important for any democracy with uh, Christian and uh, traditional values, like going back uh, to family, religion. And the combination of those two may work more effectively as a, a basis for uh, building our liberal democracy. So there's a lot to learn from what's happening these days uh, in Europe and uh, particularly in the United States. My answer is really simple. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I think that we have to believe that as human beings, and we have to take a step and do something about it. And that's what the people of Armenia did, and it's really inspirational. That's a fabulous place to end, as all of us, I think, are um, wanting to build the worlds that we would like to see. So thank you. Uh, both for helping us understand what's been going on in our Armenia and the really uh, significant and important transformation, and as you both point out, example to the world. So thank you, Vartan. Thank you, Salpi. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please take a moment and tap on the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find us under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy this episode, please take a moment and tap the share button to send it to them as well. If you have any questions about anything you heard today, or if you want to know about upcoming episodes in advance and submit questions for upcoming guests, please join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio and Emila Golich. Our audio engineer is Joe Palermo. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.